Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 12th, 2022. Um, done a number of shows about national politics in America, federal politics, and we know things aren't great. We have extremism. We have uh, violence, or at least the potential for violence. We have inertia. We have a gerontocracy dominating everything. We have the disappearance of the middle. Uh, and I'm afraid that the news may be the same at the, at the local level, too. A local politics has always been one of the jewels in the crown of American democracy, perhaps no longer. We did a show recently with a young political scientist, Nick Seabrook, on the way in which gerrymandering is killing American democracy. He has an interesting new book out, One Person, One Vote, A Surprising History of Gerrymandering in America. And we have another book by another young political scientist, uh, this one in the Northwest, uh, Jake uh, Grumbach, uh, Laboratories Against Democracy, suggesting that national parties are transforming state politics, making them more national and undermining democracy even more. Jake is joining us uh, from uh, Seattle. Uh, Jake, the news is pretty bad then on the local level. Is that right? That's right. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. And that's a, I think that was a very accurate introduction you did. Uh, so I think in general, the background context here is that, as you sort of suggested, is in the U.S. constitutional system, important democratic authorities, the main levers and mechanisms that make democracies work, whether that's election administration or districting, as you talked about in, with respect to gerrymandering, police powers or the right to count and aggregate up votes and determine the winners, that's all done at the state level constitutionally. And that's pretty unique around the world. And as politics has nationalized, what we've seen is that national, nationally oriented political groups and actors and parties have worked to undermine democracy for their national goals by using state and local institutions to do it. When de Tocqueville, who often gets cited in these kinds of conversations, came to America in the 19th century, he found the essence of American democracy to be local. Um, do you agree with Tocqueville's historical analysis of American democracy? Is that where the origins lie? Did that, does that explain the long-term, long-time strength of American democracy? So uh, I think that's one prominent argument. It's certainly true that the U.S. Constitution decentralizes authority much more than any other democracy around the world. This includes other federal systems that have multi-level governance, whether it's you know Germany, India, Canada, Switzerland. None decentralizes authority as significantly as the U.S. does. And there's been all, you know really long-standing arguments going back to James Madison and the Federalist Papers. Tocqueville and others about the sort of virtues of this decentralized governance. Um, you know, one is that it brings constituents closer to their politicians, right? You can hear it in campaigns, like as opposed to those distant fat cats in DC, I'm your local representative. Um, and then also the idea that in a large diverse country with some places are gonna be more socially conservative and religious, some places will have more immigrant groups. There's gonna be differences across geography and culture and you know, local areas can customize policy as they see fit. 
um, and people can move to places where they want to live under that particular policy regime. And then a last sort of argument for decentralization was to protect against tyranny. So during the Trump administration, we heard this a lot, like, thank God for federalism, because if there's only one centralized election administration uh, at the national level, then, you know, that would be more easily captured by a would-be autocrat. And all of those arguments are quite powerful. But I actually think what we're seeing now kind of undercuts those arguments and shows that decentralization actually can leave the U.S. vulnerable to democratic backsliding, whereas having more centralized authority and policymaking can actually protect some democracies from backsliding. So what's the problem, Jay? Uh, strategists moving in, using the dirty tactics of federal politics, of national politics at the local level. Is this the core crisis? I would say the collision of national parties in a context of highly national media, right? We see the decline of state and local journalism and the rise of national attention, national cable news. And when ordinary people vote, they don't vote based on what's going on in their local communities. You know, what? how's the economy doing in my area? Is the garbage being picked up? They tend to vote based on these national culture war cleavages. And that's a real problem when you have these national political orientation, national fundraising for candidates, national media, national parties, but the institutions are very sub-national. That creates this big disconnect. But really, I think the main thing that we're seeing is now with these national actors, particularly on, especially on the Republican side, with when you capture a state, a single swing state, for example, you can really uh, tilt the rules in your favor from that beachhead of a single state. And you can affect, so states administer elections from local dog catcher up to U.S. president. And now we're really seeing the potential for a constitutional crisis in 2024 if the Supreme Court allows a state legislature to determine how they spend their electoral college votes, regardless of what their state's voters say. That could produce a real crisis. And there's a number of other crises uh, that are more slow moving along the way. So the idea that, you know, to help my party in this national tug of war, I will, uh, you know, bias and corrupt and rig state and local democratic institutions, whether that's through gerrymandering of districts, through suppressing the vote for certain constituencies, or through fully subverting, subverting the vote in a presidential election. I get all this, and of course, it's not good news at all. What I don't understand is how the the ideologies of central government, of Republicans versus Democrats, play themselves out at the local level. After all, yeah. as you suggested, when it comes to dog catcher, maybe education is slightly different. But whether or not the trash gets collected, the streets get cleaned, um, the water and the electricity, how does this translate in an ideological sense? Right. That's a main tragedy of the nationalization of politics more broadly, where there's not much media coverage of what's going on at the state or local level. It's hard to know. It's a low information environment for that reason. It's really hard to know, you know, how to vote in a state legislative primary or uh, vote for your local representative when there's not much media coverage of what's happening politically in those institutional contexts. And then you see this in an area like COVID, where multi-level governance creates a sort of decentralized accountability. So your governor can point to 
the president and say, it's not my fault. It's the fault of this other level of government that COVID is going badly in our area. And the president can point and say, it's this stupid mayor from the other party. Whereas in a more centralized uh, institutional context, you can point, you can trace, you know, what politicians did and the outcomes they created um, and throw, throw the bastards out if they don't perform well. So that's all really declined over uh, recent decades. But really, this is it's this has been a the nationalization of American politics has been very slow moving, but it's in part the technological change and changes in media. It's part investments by political donors and interest groups. And also it's through just partisan realignment where the Democratic Party in the mid 20th century was highly decentralized, just like U.S. institutions. Southern Democrats were pro-segregation and Northern Democrats were in favor of labor union organizing and civil rights. And that was all in the same party that created, created a much more localized politics. Now it's highly nationalized. And you see this even in the debates around, you know, critical race theory and education, as you sort of suggested there. These are not actually local issues. They're, you know, people are not getting up in arms about critical race theory in response to some local increase of political race of critical race theory in their school board, right? It's about national tug of war over the direction of the country. So this is similar really across the board with issues. It's about you can ask ordinary voters why they're getting involved. And it's about, you know, on the Republican side, the idea that uh, sort of long-term hierarchy and status is being taken away at the national level. And in the Democratic sense, uh, on the Democratic Party side, it's for uh, sort of national policy goals and uh, preventing Republicans from taking office. That's it's very funny, different than the Jim Crow era. It, it's funny, Jake. We, I, I did a show uh, over the weekend with Daniel Moak, um, education theorist, with a new book out about education, basically making a similar argument to yours in the educational sphere, saying education policy worked up until uh, Johnson in the 1960s when education policy became federal. And then you had Johnson's failure and then Bush's failure with no child left behind. Before that, he wasn't, of course, idealizing uh, some of the extreme racist policies of, 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 of local administrations. But before that, uh, school policy uh, was made locally. There wasn't a federal structure. I, I assume you agree with that, and I assume that's also paralleled in other areas, not only education. What other areas um, uh, are also affected and, and corrupted by this? So education's a complicated uh policy area because it's been so decentralized for so long and the origins of that decentralization as well as decentralization and welfare state provision like why each state has its own unemployment insurance administration rather than doing it through national social security like other wealthy democracies do that often many of those have their origins in long-term institutional racism and jim crow politics in excluding black americans from social programs during the new deal for example at the same time education is quite complicated because you're right these national interventions within education have uh i'd say mostly failed i'm not an education yeah, policy and, scholar and it's interesting because he also talks in his book and in our conversation about the divisions within the african-american community in the 60s there were some who believed that the federalization of education policy was a good thing others who, who weren't so sure so it's, it's yeah. kind of interesting I, 
I'd say this is a little bit not about centralization, decentralization, but I would say I think a consensus in education, economics, scholarship is that uh, for the most part, educational outcomes come from having a strong economic basis and middle class, and that produces good educational outcomes. Having low income, or excuse me, people of low education who become parents, uh, them having stable middle class employment is probably the best thing to do to improve educational outcomes rather than expecting educational reforms to produce a good economy. Um, I'd say that's probably the consensus, but very tough questions on all these. In other areas, though, what you've seen is actually national policymaking being gridlocked since the 1970s as the parties have polarized and Congress has really stagnated and states really trying to pick up the slack. Um, so blue states, Democratic, more liberal states have passed a series of uh, you know, climate reform policies and increased taxes on the wealthy more recently have passed some gun control laws, uh, you know, gay rights and, you know, marijuana legalization. And then uh, conservative states have moved really aggressively against uh, labor unions and in deregulating uh, climate policy and in cutting taxes. So you've seen a divergence between the states. So your state of residence is now more determinative of the policies you live under and sort of your socioeconomic outcomes than it has been in a generation. That's a really big deal. Not since Jim Crow have we seen states be so distant in their sort of policy regimes. And, and it's this sort of this surreal phenomenon of bizarre divergence. On the one hand, you have the globalization of local politics, as you suggested, with stuff like uh, climate control. I mean, you're from San Francisco originally, you understand that. And on the other hand, this micro-localization and everything in between is being destroyed and pinched. That's a nice point. I mean, one irony is that the nationalization of American politics has produced a divergence between states. And you see this, this is going to you know, go into hyperdrive as states start to uh, truly ban abortion after the uh, overturning of Roe right. Wade in this recent Dobbs decision. And you might see this in other uh, areas coming up, including if the Supreme Court upholds this independent state legislature doctrine, then states will be able to determine, you know, uh, essentially like how to run elections in very, very different ways, even more different than uh, what we've seen the, uh, in the divergence over the past uh, decade or so. So, uh, you know, ditto if they rule that uh, gay marriage is not legal nationally anymore. Um, so this divergence, I think, is really kicking into hyperdrive. It's not the same divergence. I don't want to make it sound like it's the same as Jim Crow, where northern states and southern states were much more different then, and certainly under slavery. Like, this is not that level of divergence, but it is a quite significant divergence and the biggest we've seen since the 70s. These kinds of conversations, Jake, is, again, I'm sure you know this better than I do, tend to focus on Republicans and blame Republicans. But are you suggesting that really there isn't a great deal of difference between the two parties? They're both, um, they're both guilty of, of, of the same uh, way in which state politics is being transformed by national parties, whether they're Republican or Democrat. Yeah, I think we have to consider these as separate concepts or dimensions. So first is what I'd call policy polarization, this divergence we've been talking about in economic and social policy. And there, that is pretty symmetric. Like Democrats passed, you know, more progressive policies in blue states and in red states, they did the opposite and they've diverged. And like, there's a debate about 
who has been more extreme has, you know, Republican tax cutting outpaced Democrats tax increases on the wealthy, for example. Um, I think there's a debate to be had there. That's a bit unclear, but both parties have certainly done it. Then there's a separate dimension of sort of extremism towards democratic institutions. Uh, do you right. respect the opposition, the rule of law? Are you rigging the rigging the rules in your party's favor? And that has been asymmetric. Uh, the Republican Party has certainly done much more of that through since 2010, the 2010s. Republican gerrymanders in states like Wisconsin and North Carolina set mathematical records never before seen in history of the U.S. in terms of biased districting to advantage their party. And that really matters. So now gerrymandering helps explain why some states will ban abortion despite their voters not wanting it. But it's because the state legislatures are insulated from the voters through gerrymandering. So that's a mostly Republican phenomenon. But I would say the Democrats have both been asleep at the wheel. And in some cases, they do want to prevent expansions of democracy themselves, too. So I think one in state and local politics, Democrats often don't want to change electoral institutions that help them get elected. So they don't like moving their state or local elections to uh, major electoral cycles. So you see off odd year in San Francisco, for example, the mayor is elected in odd years. So nobody turns out to vote. And, you know, there's a current battle. Well, you know, San Francisco is generally an odd place. So it's not surprising. Right. So if you move that to a, an even year, a midterm election year like 2022, or even to 2024, a presidential cycle, then everybody turns out to vote and it's much more convenient. So that's one thing that Democrats tend to not support is centralizing or making elections on cycle so more people turn out to vote because they fear they'll be voted out. Uh, that's a problem. And then uh, the Democratic Party has not passed a series of policies that we know and scholarship knows does protect democracy. So nationally, the National Democratic Party could ban gerrymandering for both parties, right? But they will not circumvent the filibuster to do that, to say, listen, we're going to have bipartisan commissions draw districts or, you know, we will no longer have this partisan district drawing. They also could pass, uh, you know, automatic voter registration throughout the country. They could stop the potential for electoral subversion. All of these things they haven't done. And then also Democratic Party has not uh, supported the labor movement with some of my research with Paul Freimer statistically shows how uh, uh labor union membership really prevents white workers from becoming anti-democracy and really going off the deep end of culture war politics. So uh, through the neglect of, uh, of sort of labor organization, I think Democrats have been asleep at the wheel and protecting democracy in that front. So overall, and, and your new book is of course, uh, J J J Jacob M. Grumbach's new book, Laboratories Against Democracy. Uh, are you suggesting that the ultimate casualty of all this is local democracy. It no longer exists. It no longer works. I think in some, there's some bright spots of local democracy really working, but they're few and far between. So what uh, word would you use to suggest that, I mean, we're not talking about authoritarianism. What is it? Some sort of oligarchy, yeah. some sort of I think we have to. Yeah, we have to look at the system holistically. And I would say you're right. I don't. So I'm not fully on board with the idea that we're approaching a formal civil war in the U.S. or, you know, there's a chance, though, in 2024, uh, depending on what state legislatures in the Supreme Court do, it could be the case that a presidential election gets stolen and produces a constitutional crisis. We almost saw that in January 2021. Like that would be an inflection point. But I think the most likely outcome is 
muddling through a long-term decline, which we've already seen for a decade plus, which is that you're right, state and local politics gets less and less responsive as it becomes increasingly nationalized, accountability declines, uh, there's intermittent uh, small-scale violence, which we've already seen in the form of the January 6th attempted insurrection or before that occupations of state capitol buildings like in Oregon. Um, but there's some bright spots in local democracy, I would say. One would be uh, the young people involved in uh, organized labor with respect to Amazon and Starbucks and things like that and getting involved in local politics. There's also some small cities and towns that have... Uh, really done a better job of incorporating everyone uh, into local politics. And the last piece of context I'll say is the more local you get, the more participation takes your time and energy. So it really is hard to go to local school board meetings, to go to local city council meetings. And that's why they're dominated by older, wealthier, whiter homeowner types who are retired often who have the time to do this. So when local governments help incorporate everybody, including the college students in the area, including, you know, uh, food service workers, people with young children, all of the above through, uh, you know, making their elections and meetings accessible, then local democracy really can flourish. But I'd say in the longer term, there's really a role for the national government to help set standard rules so state governments cannot uh, backslide uh, and sort of reduce democratic quality over time. Jake, how is this playing out in terms of policy itself? People always complain about their local services, right. everything from roads to schools to water prices. Um, in your research and in the book, Laboratories Against Democracy, have you found that um, state politics and local politics are more inefficient, more corrupt, more inept? I think, you know, it really depends on the state. I would say in terms of democratic institutions uh, that there's certainly been a real weakening. And I think in some cases, there's been some real problems in terms of socioeconomic policy. There is a famous in the 2010s, the Kansas tax experiment, which uh, really uh, basically cut taxes down to zero for wealthy individuals and made it more of an oligarchic economic system there that really didn't work. Um, but on all sorts of fronts, you're right. State and local governments are much more budget constrained than the national government. So the national government has a floating currency. It has a central bank. It has uh, you know, uh, the ability to keep investment and businesses within the country in ways states and cities don't have. So you can hear wealthy individuals and businesses say, ooh, if they, you know, if this local area like wants to protect their rivers from my, you know, dumping, I'm just going to leave and take my tax revenue elsewhere and investment elsewhere. So that's a real challenge for state and local government uh, that uh, uh, has really restricted its ability to do innovative economic policy and has restricted, you know, the U.S. has been a leader through its uh, support of, for example, higher education and innovation-based research, and we have seen that decline uh, as a share of GDP over time. Um, so uh, hoping that states can uh, reinvigorate that sort of investment in the future. Uh, is there a state that's a bellwether? We always, you're from California originally, and we in California like to think of ourselves, for better or worse, as the bellwether place, as the future Local politics in California have always been bizarre. They seem particularly bizarre now. Um, Absolutely. Is California teaching us about the future of local democracy or the future of the lack of local democracy? 
I think California is a great bellwether signal canary in the coal mine for blue states, especially for the wealthier blue states. And with respect to, for example, housing policy, um, that's a really important. So California has been continues to be a leader in a number of areas. And there's, uh, you know, its economy really is booming and has been booming. There are budget surpluses. Uh, its university system has seen reinvestment. Um, it's uh, established, uh, you know, some you know, things like expanded Medicaid for health insurance um, and, you know, systems of that sort. But then at the hyper local level, it's true is housing costs are unimaginable, like absolutely ridiculous as a combination of, you know, especially not building enough housing over the past generation. And there really is a series of local bottlenecks around that that are resistant to housing construction. This really limits California's ability to be a leader and attract talent um, or really any, any you know, type of person who wants but to create a life. The increasing chasm between rich and poor, the disappearance of the middle class. What about bellwether red states? Would it be Florida or Texas? Yeah, that's a really nice point. So there's some, so on the Democratic backsliding front, states like Wisconsin and North Carolina, I think are the leaders in in really frightening moves towards democratic institutions. But in terms of the, the politics and socioeconomic policies, I would say you're right. Texas is kind of, uh, uh, you know, aims to, through cheaper housing, attract residents from blue states. Um, it has a pretty strong economy. Um, it had this recent energy crisis um, as a result of deregulated energy markets and things like that. So I think that could be a bellwether red state. But I think the other thing is, Texas is still kind of growing, but there's a, a places that are really red states are tend to be the poorer states. So one thing that's really hard to keep in mind is this, is that at the individual level, the richest people tend to vote Republican, but the richer states tend to vote Democratic. So in states that are doing, it's really the Republican voter, voter iconically, like the Republican base is a sort of like somebody who owns a chain of of businesses of smaller medium-sized businesses classic yeah yeah the the used car dealer in a down and out state um in the midwest the form the rust belt formerly industrialized place that's really a key member in the the blue states we all own electronic vehicles so or we have multi-billionaire ev tycoons like musk who right who is sort of post-politics, I guess. Jake, it's really interesting stuff and important stuff. I mean, local politics, most people tend to find rather boring, but this is very interesting and important. Uh, Laboratories Against Democracy, How National Parties Transform State Politics. It's not good, but perhaps it's not quite as dire as, as, as the title suggests. But finally, what policy suggestions would you suggest if we're going to address some of the problems that you talk about in the book? Yeah, that's nicely summarized, Andrew. And I would say, you know, the situation looks bleak, but it's over the long term. And what the tough thing is that we, you know, people who listen to your podcast or are interested in politics and big issues, we want a quick fix. Um, And we also think the problems are extremely some sort of we're about to step off a cliff, but reality of and social science and quantitative research that I do and others do really shows that these are longer term trends and we're in a bad long term trend line right now that continues to get worse. 
uh, for American politics and policy and democracy. But uh, ways to reverse that trend are also long term. And one is uh, reinvesting in organization at the local level. So federated organizational structures. So rather than every, you know, if you're interested in elections, you might have done phone banking or text banking, you know, for your candidates every couple of years or something like that. It's much more effective to get involved with people, you know, in your local community. Um, that's tough to do when you live in a politically homogenous place to be effective, but it still really matters. And organization. So I'm going to shout out again, the labor movement, which connects ordinary individuals across racial lines at the workplace to policies and material outcomes for their lives, as opposed to culture war politics. So right now, a sad fact of American politics is you can tell more about how somebody votes by asking them what they thought about Lil Nas X at the Country Music Awards or like, you know, the whatever happened in Disney World, groomers, Florida, whatever, whatever. You, you can learn a lot more about their politics than asking them about health insurance or the environment or uh, the minimum wage. So getting politics back connected to ordinary people and national policymaking can help on all those fronts. Reinvigorating the labor movement, protecting against democratic backsliding by banning gerrymandering and voter suppression and preventing a stolen presidential election. All wise stuff, all stuff we've covered. We've talked a lot about gerrymandering. We certainly talked a great deal about the value of organized labor in the 21st century, rethinking the nature of organized labor. And we've talked, of course, about the problem, the crisis of 2020 in January 6th. Jake, uh, congratulations. Very smart, young political scientist. We're going to hear a lot about from you in the future. Your new book, Laboratories Against Democracy, How National Parties Transform State Politics. It's a Princeton University book, a Princeton University press book. It's just out. Well, what else are you reading these days, uh, Jake? Yeah. So on this topic, if you're interested more in the nationalization of American politics, this political scientist at University of Pennsylvania, Dan Hopkins, has a book, The Increasingly United States. And that's about pol people's political attitudes and psychology and how nobody cares about what's going on locally anymore. Um, and that the you know, decline of state and local media plays a key role there. Um, also, I uh, uh, work on this labor stuff with this uh, political scientist, Paul Freimer, who has a series of books about uh, building multiracial labor movements through the civil rights period and onward, a uh, book, for example. You don't have to introduce me. I'd like to get him on the show. That sounds great. 